The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning, Delta. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. If you're reading from the Black Pew Bible, that can be found on page 805. Please stand when you're ready to read God's Word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they told them concerning this child. And all who had heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke, as you've heard now several times. We'll be in this Gospel for for some time, looking at uh, one of my one of my favorite Gospels. Uh, our sermon title this morning is "The Birth of the Savior." Some very familiar territory in front of us. Hopefully, it wasn't too much of a, a dissonance kind of thing. Um, singing "Joy to the World" um, in August, a little Christmas in August for us, but. Uh, truly singing that song uh, is not just a December-only uh, reality, but it's a reality any time that we approach this text. The main idea we're going to see this morning is yet another credential. I'm going to remind us here in a few minutes that what Luke is doing in the opening chapters of his gospel is he's basically showing us Jesus' resume. Why should we trust that he alone is the one who is capable of saving sinners, Jew, Gentile, black, white, rich, poor, the world over, 
The answer for salvation for sinners, according to the Scriptures, is found in Christ alone. The question is, why should we believe that? What proof, what evidence do the Scriptures give us that Jesus is the one qualified to get that job done? And Luke is giving us a lot of content in the opening chapters of his gospel as proof, as evidence, over and over and over again for why Jesus alone is the culmination point of salvation history. When it comes to the actual birth of Jesus Christ, Mary giving birth to her firstborn son, this isn't just merely content given so that Christmas can have a story. This is content because Luke wants us to see something in the context of his entire letter. And what he wants us to see is this main idea this morning that Jesus alone is the culmination point of salvation history. When Mary has her baby boy, this is the pinnacle of the promises of God because in that baby, as we're going to see, we find Savior, Christ, and Lord. And that is exactly what you and I need. So I'm going to hit pause. I'm going to pray for us. Um, a lot of life has happened since we've last gathered. Six days and 22 hours have come and have gone, and we are uh, sojourners on the pilgrim way, and many of us are probably weary. Any weary pilgrim travelers here this morning? Yeah? The gospel tank is a little empty, yeah? And what we need is some gospel gasoline poured into our souls. The good news is that the Word of God is that fuel. And when we come and we submit ourselves to the Word of God, submit ourselves to the Christ whom that Word of God points to, you can find fuel for your soul. So I'm going to pray for us that a very familiar story sort of lands on us, maybe with some unfamiliarity, that we wouldn't let a story that we know far too well just sort of roll off of our hearts like water off a duck's back but that our hearts would be pierced in ways that maybe it hasn't been pierced in a while from the Christmas story of the birth of the Lord, the Savior, the Christ, namely Jesus. Amen? So let's pray for that. Father, we come to you recognizing you are our God. You are the gracious one. You're the sovereign one. You're the merciful one. You're the faithful one. You're the steadfast one. You're the trustworthy one. You're the promise-keeping one. You're the holy one. And when we come before you like Isaiah, what can become immeasurably clear is this. We need a Savior. And so that's why we ask, Father, that you would open our eyes to see our need for Jesus this morning. Our eyes are prone to want and yearn and desire everything but Jesus. Holy Spirit, I'm asking by your great power, you would do what you love to do, which is turn us to see Jesus' full look into his face and see the goodness of our Savior who came to save sinners like us oh that is the good news of great joy as we're going to hear here shortly and lord would you wow us and fuel us with that gospel gasoline it's in the name of our risen king i pray these things amen 
So let's just reorient real quick where we are in Luke's gospel. If you jump back into the first four verses of chapter 1, what you find is his introduction. And Luke tells us, this is why I am writing to you. You don't have to second guess. But what you can see is that he has an aim. And Dr. Luke tells us that the aim of his book is so that his reader, specifically a man named Theophilus, should be clear and certain about the content of the gospel. Theophilus is a man who's been taught the things of Christ, but Luke says, I want you to be absolutely rock-solid, concrete, certain concerning these things. So I've done a lot of research. I went and gathered eyewitness testimony, and I put it down in a book before you hear. Now, what Luke wants for Theophilus and subsequently readers of his gospel, like you and me, is not just so that we can be big fat heads full of information concerning the realities and the facts concerning the life of Christ. The end goal is found at the very last four verses of Luke's gospel where he says with the words of Jesus, Jesus is calling us to take this gospel certainty that can be found from reading his gospel and then go out into the world so that the world can be upside down by Christians living and showing and teaching and telling the Lord Jesus Christ, but we will not go and tell others about Christ if we're not certain about the gospel of Christ. And so Luke says, let me write a book for you. So that you can be certain about this thing that we are called to go share and tell. Now, like the other authors of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, John, Luke is going to eventually come to the place where he turns us to the public launch of Jesus' ministry. But before he does that, he first pauses and gives us nearly four full chapters of preliminary content. The other Gospels, they usually launch right into it. A little intro, maybe, then boom, Jesus' public ministry, then you're off and running. Luke says, I'm going to get there, but here's four chapters of content first. The question to ask is why? Why did he do it this way? The answer is so that we can be certain That when Jesus in Luke chapter 4, which is where Luke records for us the public launch of Jesus' ministry, he wants us to be certain that by the time we arrive in the middle of Luke chapter 4, when Jesus stands up in a Nazareth synagogue, takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, rolls the scroll down to the place and reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The Lord has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the gear of the Lord's favor, then looks at the crowd and tells the crowd, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, Luke says, when we get to this point, I want you to see that these actions of Jesus are not the delusions of some lunatic. These actions are not the deceptions of some liar. These actions are the rightful actions of the incarnate Son of God. So when we get to that point, we've seen credential after credential, qualification after qualification for someone to stand up, take their Bible, read it, and say, this is true about me. If any one of us did that, they would grab us by the scruff of the neck and throw us out the door of the church. Why? Because it's preposterous to say that I am the fulfillment of Scripture. But there is one person, past, present, future, who has the right to stand up and say, I am the fulfillment of all God's promises 
and his name is Jesus. That's a credential that we need to see, and that is what we're going to see this morning. So in order to prepare us for that chapter for a moment, Luke has been giving us the Savior's resume, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. He's been giving us the credentials that show that Jesus truly is the Savior who makes salvation possible for every person in all the world. In the foretelling of his birth in Luke chapter 1, we learn that Jesus, he is the long-promised Old Testament fulfilling Savior, and he's worthy to be believed. We struggle with believing Jesus, don't we? Anyone ever struggle hearing the words of Christ, hearing the words of God, and go, yeah, I know, but... He saw that in Zechariah. He saw it in Mary. But Luke is encouraging his friend Theophilus, when you hear Jesus say what he says about himself, it is worthy to be believed. This is a credential of Jesus. In Mary's song, which was preached by Brady a couple weeks ago, in Zechariah's prophecy, which was preached by Brian last week, we learn that the joyful rescue and the merciful salvation of sinners is found only in Jesus. The word only is very important in that sentence. Sinners will not find joyful rescue in anyone else. Can't find it. We'll search, we'll try, we'll yearn, we'll strive to find rescue for our souls in so many ways, but it can only be found in Jesus. Theophilus, you need to know this. Merciful salvation found in Jesus alone. That is another credential. And now this morning, the credential train keeps on trucking down the tracks, and Jesus and Luke wants us to see that credential Number three is this, Jesus alone is the culmination point of salvation history. History of God saving his people comes to that crescendo, the pinnacle point in Bethlehem, in a manger, and a baby boy born to a woman named Mary. That is the miracle of the incarnation of the Son of God. This is what Luke wants us to see. Chapter two isn't content, so Christmas can have a story. Wasn't like Luke was sitting here, has, you know, stylets in hand. Mm-mm-mm. You know what? There's probably going to be a holiday one of these days. Probably on December 25th. I don't know. Just guessing wildly here. Might actually call it Christmas. You know, some people are going to actually have to have some stuff to sing and write about. I better write some things down so Christmas can have a little bit of content so people can do some stuff. That's not what's going on. We've imported that onto Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 exists in a bigger context in Luke's gospel, one that real and honestly has nothing to do with Christmas in that sense. He's wanting us to see that Jesus alone is the culmination point of salvation history so that by seeing this content concerning Christ and shepherds and angels and glory to God in the highest and all these sorts of things, that you can have gospel certainty. And then having gospel certainty stand up, walk right back out into the next six days and 22 hours, fueled by the certainty of the gospel, our mouths begin to open and proclaim and share and tell and show Jesus just like the shepherds do at the end of this text. So how does Luke do this? We have a scene in front of us. It's the birth scene, very familiar scene before us. How does Luke unfold the scene? It begins with point number one, a supernatural, natural birth. All right? Something very natural is going on here. A woman is about to have a baby, but there's something very supernatural about this natural birth, and that's what you see in the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. Look in your copy of Scripture. Scroll to verse 1. 
Notice what Luke writes for us. He says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is for taxation purposes. It's a bit of a census kind of thing that's going on here. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to be registered. Each went to his own town. This includes a man named Joseph who also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. That's where he was. He now needs to go to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was of the house and lineage of David. His ancestral home is Bethlehem. He goes to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who Luke tells us was with child. Now, when you take in these first several verses, just notice how these verses are dripping with the mundane. This guy was in charge. This person was making decrees. This man was doing some traveling. This woman was pregnant with a baby. It's just complete, the complete mundanity of, of life, the banality of it all. Luke is describing what is, for many of us, just the boring stuff of history, the things you learn in high school that you sort of care about, but not really, right? Yeah, there was a guy named Caesar, and his, last, his name was Augustus, and there was a guy named Quirinius. Yeah, he was governor of Syria. That's, that's good, that's good, but no one really cares, right? But remember what Luke is doing. Luke is anchoring the supernatural redemption story of God in real time and real space. This isn't myth. This isn't legend. This isn't the stuff of fairy, fairy tales, elves, and unicorns. This is real deal, real life things. And so Luke's concern for precise historical detail is because he wants you and I to know we're dealing with reality, but reality as it may be, it's also, also boring, seemingly. It's just the routine stuff, so normal in one sense, everything is absolutely ordinary in these verses, everything is absolutely natural. Caesars are Caesaring, as Augustus issues a decree that the world should be registered, governors are governing making sure those decrees from Caesar are being carried out. And in it all, says Luke, we have another very routine event. As a husband, as a wife, are birthing a baby. Just the routine stuff of life, the normal things. A man named Joseph, town of Nazareth in Galilee. He's got to travel to Bethlehem now in Judea. He's bringing along Mary, betrothed. She's with child. And while they were there, notice verse 6. The time came for her to give birth, which is just what happens if you're pregnant, right? The time eventually comes for someone to give birth. Normal, routine. All God's people hear this, they're like, well, of course, this is what's going on. Why? Because this is what we expect for a woman who is pregnant. We expect her, if she's pregnant, for a time to come for her to give birth. We expect birth pains to increase. We expect contractions to begin. We expect the eventual cries of a newborn. All of this happens for Mary in verse 7. Very natural. Mary, in verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son. That's just something very, very ordinary. Mary wraps him in swaddling clothes upon giving birth to him. Something very ordinary. But notice in verse 7, Luke begins to give us a hint that something a little extraordinary is going on. Because upon the birth of her firstborn son, Mary laid him in a manger, something very unordinary, because there was no place for them in the end, something very unordinary. But the unordinariness of the whole manger kind of thing, again, this isn't just so that we can have something to put on Christmas cards around December. 
Luke is giving Theophilus, you, me, a heads up that there's something more going on to the birth of Mary's firstborn son than we might first see. And that's exactly the point Luke wants us to see, that in the midst of the ordinariness of it all, the supernatural was invading the natural right here, right now, through the birth of Mary's firstborn son. Yes, the historical setting is anchoring us in the raw data of everyday life, but don't let the predictable pattern of ordinariness lead you to miss the fact that God is working his extraordinary acts in the details of daily life. That's where God does his work. The mighty acts of God take place in the midst of the ordinary. While Caesar was playing politics and issuing decrees, which is very natural and ordinary for a Caesar to do, notice that the supernatural is invading and shining through as the Lord God is orchestrating the fulfillment of his promise that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. You ever think about that? How did Mary in Nazareth get to Bethlehem in fulfillment of the Micah 5 prophecy that we read during our liturgy today. It happens through the very ordinary means of a Caesar saying, I want a census and I want to tax people and so I'm going to make a decree and then people are going to have to move. But here's God in the ordinary events of Caesar decrees bringing about the fulfillment of his prophecy, supernatural invading the natural. Yes, a young woman is giving birth to a baby boy just like has happened ever since Eve. It's all very ordinary, women giving birth to babies. But the extraordinary, again, is invading the ordinary as the Son of God who is in her womb, Philippians 2 tells us, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. When you peek over the edge of the Christmas manger, there's something more going on inside there. It's not just another boy. It's not just another baby. The supernatural is invading the natural as God's redemption story comes to its culminating point. And in similar ways, just think about it. In similar ways, the same thing happens in our ordinary, everyday, average, monotonous, normal routines of life. Question, not rhetorical. By show of hands, has God ever shown up in your life and met you in some way? If the answer is yes, raise your hand. Did he meet you in a Mount of Transfiguration kind of way? Like were you up on the mountain, Jesus shining like the sun, blowing you away? For some of us, maybe. Or was it in the ordinariness of life? Ordinary life, right? You're folding some laundry, listening to a sermon, the Holy Spirit shows up and wrecks you. Answering an email because someone's asking you something and then the Holy Spirit moves in a mighty way, gives you an answer, you send it off, and the person's like, I don't know how you knew this, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Email. 
Maybe you're driving your car, maybe you're feeding your baby, maybe you're studying for exams, maybe you're eating with your neighbor, maybe you're serving the homeless, maybe you're teaching a student, maybe you're reading your Bible, maybe you're attending community group, but what you need to know is that it was in that ordinary place such as these kinds of things that God routinely and happily breaks in to the ordinary turns it to the extraordinary in the natural rhythms of life the supernatural shows up turns our world upside down because god met us in extraordinary ways that changes absolutely forever we shouldn't downplay the ordinary i can be guilty so often of saying i need a mount of transfiguration experience every single second of every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every month if that was the case then that event would be ordinary that event is extraordinary because it is truly extraordinary. So it's not wrong to want to meet God in those very extraordinary ways, but what you need to know is that what God is so often does in the Old and in the New Testament is through the ordinary places of life shows up and meets us. And we can rejoice in that. Just like Mary could rejoice. And just like Caesar, I'm sure if he was aware that he was being used by God, would rejoice. I'm positive Caesar was clueless that his decree was actually fulfilling prophecy from an Old Testament prophet named Micah. I'm sure Mary had a clear understanding that there was something more going on here as you can go back and just hear from her song as she's carried along by the Holy Spirit. She understands that there's some supernatural invading the natural here. But notice that as Luke carries on wrapping into verses 8 through 14, Luke turns our attention to some shepherds. Some shepherds who are going to learn this truth that the supernatural invades the natural in very ordinary ways as they come to understand, point number two, the significance of Jesus' birth. Right now, I'm thinking that very few people actually know what's going on with the birth of Jesus. People know that Mary's about to have a baby. Others know that. But the significance of that baby, I think, is known to very few. Joseph, Mary, for sure. They've had contact with angels talking to them about this. But now there's about to be some confirmation that they're just not off their nut. Like, right, they just didn't have like a wild taco Tuesday night and feeling a little funky and had some weird dreams. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, son of God, babe, like, what's that all about? Like, is this actually true? Someone's about to show up and say, yeah, this thing's actually true. And it's going to be confirmed by people you would never expect to come and confirm this truth. There's something significant going on about the Jesus' birth. Theophilus, you need to know this. So look, starting in verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. Very ordinary. Shepherds, that's what they do. Keeping watch of their flock by night, very natural. That's just what shepherds do. And notice, here comes the supernatural invading the natural. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. That's very extraordinary. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. If you go and do a little Bible study today, what you'll find is that phrase, the glory of the Lord breaking into the natural in, uh, in just in miraculous sorts of ways happens very, very, very little. It usually happens in very big sort of ways, but it happens very, very little. And one of the times is right here to some shepherds out in, out in the field. How did they respond? They were filled with great fear, which is what tends to happen when angels show up. If you just go read chapter 1, when the angels showed up to Zechariah, scared. When the angels showed up to Mary, fear. 
Now it's happening here again. But don't be scared, says the angel. Why? Fear not, for behold, I'm bringing you, we could all say this, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a what? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus' birth has occurred, says Luke. And now the angel announces and explains the significance of that birth. What we need is for God to show us why this particular baby boy is not just another typical baby boy. We need God to reveal this to us, and he's doing this through the angel. Notice that the focus is not on the fact that a woman named Mary had a baby. Over the course of history, there have been many women named Mary who have had many babies, What the shepherds need to learn, along with Theophilus and along with those like him, you and me, is what makes this particular baby so unique. Why is an angel of the Lord appearing at the birth of this baby? Why is the glory of the Lord piercing the midnight sky at the birth of this baby? Why is there about to be a multitude of the heavenly hosts splitting the sky open, praising God at the birth of this particular baby? The good news is that God does not leave us in the dark trying to puzzle these questions out. Instead, he says, let me send an angel to give you the interpretation of why all heaven is breaking loose with a massive party over the birth of this particular baby. Namely, here's the answer of why this is all happening at the birth of this firstborn son. Verse 11, because unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. No other baby in the history of mankind, past, present, future, will ever have this said of them. Only one, Theophilus. Only one qualifies to be called Savior Christ and Lord, and it is this particular baby in the Bethlehem manger. So grasp this, Theophilus. Jesus is the promised one. He is the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He is the descendant of David. He is the one authorized by God to rule and reign over the people of God. He's the Christ. He is the able one. He is Lord. He's the ruler. He's not, this Lord term is not only a term used to describe the God of Israel, which it is, but notice that it is also used to describe Jesus. He's divine. And then third, notice that Jesus is the needed one. He is the Savior sent to rescue those who need to be saved. And who needs to be saved? From the penalty that our sins deserve. From a just and holy God. Who? It's you and it's me. You don't send a Savior because no one needs to be saved. You send a Savior because someone needs to be saved. He's Savior. He's Christ. He's Lord. Notice this is how the shepherd's great fear is going to dissolve and transition into great joy. How do you go from great fear to great joy? The answer is in between. It's by the power of God's good news. The good news of the gospel. That's what the word good news there is. It's the word gospel. So when you hear the word gospel, think good news. When you hear good news, think about gospel. What's the good news of the gospel? The good news of the gospel is Jesus is the Savior who came to save sinners. We are sinners, and Jesus can actually save us. This is good news. 
Notice that God's gospel, this good news that the Savior we need has finally showed up, is going to be for all the people. You see that right there, right? Verse 10. Good news of great joy. We concentrate on that so often in our Christmas time retelling of Luke 2, but we so little see that very important phrase, which is hugely important to Luke. This is good news not just for the Jews. This is good news also for the Gentiles. This is not just good news for white people, but this is good news for black and brown people. This is not just good news for men. This is good news for women. This is not just good news for rich. This is good news for poor. Why? Why is this good news that is meant to bring great joy to be for all the people? A-L-L encapsulates every single human being who's ever existed, is existing, and will exist. Why is this such good news? It's because of this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is going to be good news for all people because all have sinned. That word all there. Very important. And because all have sinned, this means all have fallen short of the glory of God. None is righteous before a holy God. No, not one. In and of yourself, none of us can stand before a holy God and say, I in and of myself have made myself right with you. Nobody can do that. We need someone to make us right before a holy God. The wages of sin is death. So if this is good news for all people, why? Because all people have sinned, all have fallen short, no one is righteous, not even one. This means that all who have sinned and fallen short of the God are going to reap a wage, and that wage of sin is death, which is what we deserve since we have all sinned. But praise God that while the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in who? Christ Jesus, who is Lord. Paul reaches right into Luke 2 and pulls out these titles concerning who Jesus is. Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is who, this is where eternal life is found. He is the royal Savior born this day in the city of David who came to seek and to save the lost. You see, no one cares about a royal Savior who can only come and seek the lost. If Jesus could only seek the lost, nobody would give a rip. I know you're lost. I came to find you, but I can't do anything about it. Okay. Who cares? If Jesus is a royal savior who can save the lost, but he has no care to actually seek, I know you're lost. I know you're not right with God. I know the wage of sin is death, spiritual death, and you'll be eternally separated from God. I know that I have the power to save you, but I actually don't honestly care, and I'm not going to seek you. And you're definitely not going to seek me because dead people in their sins don't seek out a Savior. That would be awful news. Nobody would care about that kind of Savior. But if there is a Savior who came to not only seek the lost, but also save the lost, then that is the Christmas exclamation, good news of great joy because you can be made right with a holy God because the baby in this manger is who? He's Savior, He is Christ, and He is Lord. You see, beloved, what you and I need is a Savior. Jesus didn't come to make good people better. 
The trouble with the world today is we think we're just a bunch of good people who just need a little extra nudge so that good people can be better. And what Jesus comes along is he's sort of like the therapist who will slap us on the back and tell us some things we need so that good people can be a little bit better. It's not a downplay on people who are going to see a therapist, by the way. If you're in counseling, this is good. If you're seeing a therapist, this is all right. I'm just saying in an unbiblical way, that kind of reality can just be sort of putting band-aids on the wounds in certain scenarios where we're just trying to say, no, you're good, you're all right, just go and try to be a little bit better. And what we do is we look to Jesus as sort of the supernatural therapist who's just come to make good people better, but that is not who Jesus is. Jesus is not some cosmic therapist. What you and I need is a savior. God did not send an economist because our deepest need is not poverty. He did not send a philosopher because our trouble is not incoherence. God didn't send a psychologist for our problem is not maladjustment. He did not send an entertainer because our problem is not boredom. And he didn't send a philanthropist because our problem isn't a need for a moral do-gooder. No, God sent a Savior who is Christ the Lord because that is what you and I need. So the question is, is he your Savior? Has Jesus saved you from what your sins deserve. What do our sins deserve? Death, eternal separation from God. We're the guilty ones. We've sinned against him. He's holy. He must judge, punish sin, law-breaking. Sin is lawlessness, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John. We need to be saved. Is he your Savior? Has he saved you? Is Jesus your Christ? Is he your Lord? Have you come to the place in your life where your eyes have been opened to see, I need someone to save me? I've tried to save myself in a lot of ways. I've tried to give more money. I've tried to be a better person. I've tried to do good. I've tried to give things away. I've tried to stop doing bad things in my own power, in my own strength. I've tried to be my own savior. I've looked to other people for my Savior, I've got problems. I've so often turned to things hoping that they will satisfy. But I've come to find that alcohol will not save me. Relationships will not save me. Money will not save me. Sex will not save me. Family will not save me. Spouse will not save me. Parents will not save me. Politics will not save me. Presidents, Caesars, governors, mayors, senators, representatives, none of it will save me. I need a savior. I need a savior to come and save my soul for what my sins deserve, which is hell and punishment separated from a holy God. But Jesus comes and says, I am that savior. I can save the lost and I delight to seek. Have you been found by the seeking savior? Has he sought you and saved you? Is he your Christ? Is he your Lord? Lastly, notice as you roll into verses 15 through 20, point number three, the response to this birth. So we've seen a supernatural 
natural birth. We've seen there's something significant going on here. Theophilus, this is no mere baby. He is the culminating point of salvation history. So how do we respond to this? We're going to see two responses from shepherds and from Mary. Look, starting in verse 15. When the angels went away from them, the them in verse 15, it's the shepherds. When the angels went away from the shepherds into heaven, they said to one another, "Uh, we need to go to Bethlehem. We need to see this thing that has happened. When the supernatural invades the natural, you don't just shrug it off. You're like, well, that was pretty crazy. When an angel cracks the midnight sky and the multitude of the heavenly host sings glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased, you don't just shrug your shoulders and burrow into your pillow a little bit deeper and just go like, well, that was nuts. You get up and you go and you see what the person was talking about. The Lord has made something known to us. They recognize the source material. It's not just some angel. It's an angel who is a messenger relaying to them what the Lord God wants them to know. So here again is Luke's emphasis on eyewitness testimony. Let us go. Let us see the thing. They want to go and say, well, the angel told us, right? Let's not just take his word for it. Let's go and see if what he's saying is actually true. So Luke says that's what they did. They went with haste. Who do they find? They find Mary and Joseph. They find the baby lying in a manger, which is the very sign the angel said was to be given to identify that this royal divine baby, you found him. It's going to be a baby lying in a manger. They find him. They tell what they have heard. They made known the saying of the angel that had been told them concerning Mary's baby. And what is the reaction? The reaction is that all who heard it wondered at what we're being told. They're blown away. What do you mean, like supernatural invading natural? How, what do you mean, angels and multitudes and glory to gods and good news and great joy? What, what do you mean by all these things? They're wondering at it. The notice in verse 20 that the shepherds eventually return, glorifying, praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So when you just look at the shepherds, what you can see is this that at least one proper response to discovering Jesus Christ, the Savior, a proper response is proclamation and praise. That's what they do. What? This is true? This is an actual Savior? I'm going to go tell someone about this. Proclamation. That probably just needs to be a sermon in and of itself one of these times. But notice that it's not just proclamation, it's praise. They come unglued. They let it rip. They raise their hands. They sing. They're joyful. They're happy. They're enthralled. The hopes and dreams through all the years have been fulfilled in thee tonight, right? That's what we sing around Christmas time. That's true for them. The prophet's longings finally fulfilled in that baby. The epicenter of every prophet's prophecies fulfilled in that manger. That's enough to cause them to praise. But notice that there's another proper response too, and that's what we find in Mary. So beyond a proper response being proclamation and praise, notice that another proper response is pondering what you hear. Pondering what you hear. That's what Mary is doing, isn't it, right there in verse 19? Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She's mulling it over. She's thinking it out. She's, she's, she's reasoning. She's going, okay, I know this seems insane, but it was insane when they told me I was going to have a baby without ever doing what 
people have to do to have babies. But now I have a baby. It's actually happened. And I know it's sort of weird. People don't always see angels, but they're telling me it's happened. And I mean, that's sort of true because I've seen an angel. So she's reasoning that out. And what do you mean? Like glory to God in the highest and the multitude of angels? You know, that's, that's sort of extraordinary. But like this whole thing has been extraordinary. She's pondering. She's mulling it. She's thinking it over. She's taking time to, to reason out and to just understand God's good news of great joy. But the thing is that her response is something that we so often fail to do, right? We so often fail to just pause. Be quiet. Take God's word. And ponder it. We're so prone to cram our schedules to the max. Fill it to the brim that we never stop to ponder the good news of great joy. That a Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born. If you were to stop and ponder it, what would you discover? You'd ponder, well, why do I need a Savior? That's probably saying something. I need to think that one through. Why do I need a Christ? What does it even mean for him to be the Christ? Why do I care that he is the Christ? I need to probably ponder that one through. Lord? Why do I need a Lord? Aren't I the Lord of my own life? Why does the Bible say it's good news that a Lord who can come and happily, joyfully rule and reign over me, I'm not sure that I like that. I might need to ponder that one out. Pondering the good news of great joy. The shepherds reached Bethlehem. They discovered that the angels' words were true and that what had been announced had indeed taken place. And this should encourage Theophilus, like Mary, to think long and hard about the precise detail of the angels' announcement. That's what Theophilus is to get. Theophilus, have you pondered these things out? Saints before me right now, have you pondered these things out? Have you thought these things through? That's what Luke wants for Theophilus, and that's where I'm going to take up the mantle of Luke and say, I think we are meant to go. Mary's response is meant to be our response in that sense. Why am I up here looking like I'm fighting off bees, waving my hand, getting really excited, talking really excited about the Bible up here? Am I just doing this because someone's paying me to do this? No. Am I asking you to ponder this because it's job security, because maybe you'll come back next week and I can give you more information and things to ponder? No, I'm asking you this because your soul hangs on the edge of it. I want to see you inherit eternal life. I want to see you walk in such a way to where your life reflects the glories of this good news of great joy. And it will come not because some guy like me gets up for 45 minutes and sort of waves things around and asks you to consider stuff. It will come as you go home in the next six days and 22 hours, scoop up these things and go, man, is what he said true? Like, God, will you help me reason this thing out? Will you help me ponder the Savior Christ, Lord? You see, Luke will not allow us to think of Jesus as simply a great moral teacher. If you go out in the marketplaces today, was Jesus a good teacher? Some will still say yes. That is rapidly changing. But there's still a decent amount of people who will go like, yeah, he's a good guy. Did some good stuff. But Jesus... He was more than just a great moral teacher. Luke will not allow us to simply think of him as a great moral teacher. He's not going to let us get off the hook by just saying, yeah, he did some mighty, mighty miracles. He was a mighty miracle worker. Well, you know, he did some great social reform and those sorts of things. 
Luke says, I will not allow you to hang those things on Jesus. Either Jesus is Savior, Christ, and Lord, or he's nothing. That's what the invitation of Luke is before Theophilus, and that is what the invitation of Luke is through me to you. Either the baby in the manger is Jesus, who is Christ, who is Savior, who is Lord, or it's a complete load of baloney, and we should not come back and have anything to do with this. That's the diff. That's the point in the path of where we're at. But what Luke is obviously doing is laying it out where he says, here's some evidence for you so that you draw the conclusion that while it might seem crazy to think that a baby could be the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy, Savior, Christ, and Lord, it's true. It's true. So the question I have for you as we wrap up and we're going to sing a song about this king to go back to the question I asked you a little while ago. Is he your Savior? Is he your Christ? Is he your Lord? We all like hearing promises, especially if the promise giver is a promise keeper. And I'm telling you, God is a promise keeper. So hear this promise of God. If Jesus is not your royal Savior, if he's not your Christ, not your Lord, like right now you can say, like, I know this for sure. Like, he's not my Savior. I've never asked him to save me. That's how I know he's not my Savior. He's not my Christ, my Lord, because I've never asked him to be my Christ, to be my Lord. Here's a good news promise from God. Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. There it is. Luke 2, Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, promise you will be saved. You will be saved. If you come to the place where in your heart of hearts you say, I know that God raised Jesus from the dead. And I know that God raised Jesus from the dead because Jesus went to the cross. And I know why Jesus went to the cross. Because some kind of sacrifice had to be paid for sins. And I know that the sacrifice for sins or paid were sins like mine. And I know that Jesus being raised from the dead means that Jesus has defeated Satan. Jesus has defeated sin. Jesus has defeated death. And if he can do that, then he can save me. I believe this. And Jesus says, out of the overflow of our heart's belief, our mouth will confess. So if you can say, I believe in my heart God is raised him from the dead. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Christ. Savior, Christ, Lord, will you save me and rule and reign over me? And will you lead me and guide me as my Savior? I'm confessing this with my mouth. Promise you will be saved. And that can be true of you today if you do not know Christ, Jesus, as Savior and as Lord. This is good news of great joy, yes? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for what we would typically call the Christmas story. It truly is good news of great joy. Lord, bring salvation. Sovereign God, bring salvation to someone here today. Lord, Christ, Savior, save sinners today. Lord, for those of us who struggle with just the ordinary ways of life, would you help us to see that our God works in the ordinary? And so in the next six days and 22 hours, would you help us to walk with faithfulness and obedience to you, trusting that in the ordinary, the extraordinary can break in and we can meet with God. 
we can walk with him, know him. Lord, would these things fuel us? Would this be the gospel gasoline in our soul for the next six days and 22 hours? And may we respond like the shepherds, respond like Mary, pondering, proclaiming, praising. Lord Jesus, receive the glory you're worthy to receive in our lives and the days to come. It's in your name, resurrected King, I pray. Amen.